the face of America is changing by 2040, the face of America will be more minority than the majority. But I tell the example of my 24-year-old son. He's grown up in a diverse environment. He's grown up in technology. His world has always been that way. They live in the world we're talking about is changing. The reality is it's already changed. In his world, is the only world he knows. Us old heads are still talking about it's changing, but the reality is we already live in a different world. Golf has to catch up. Golf is 35 years behind this change that we're talking about. And if golf doesn't get intentional about making the change and making the change, it's gonna take some resources, then it's still gonna be stuck 35 years behind the world that has already changed. We need to fast track this thing. If it's ever gonna be the great game that we love, if it's ever gonna be a game that's open to all demographics, we've got to change now. This little slow tracking that we're doing and throwing crumbs at it, it's not gonna change like that. We gotta giddy up and make a change right away. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Dr. Michael Cooper, who is the chairman of the World Golf Foundation Golf 2020 Diversity Task Force, a board member on the National Black Golf Hall of Fame, and tournament director of the Advocates of the Advocates Pro Golf Tour. Dr. Cooper, thanks so much for joining me today on the Mod Golf Podcast. Thank you, Calvin. I really appreciate it. So lots to talk about here. Uh, unfortunately, I did not have the chance to meet you in person at the PGA show last week. So I'm so glad you managed to make the time to speak with us here today. So starting here, Dr. Cooper, can you share a bit about yourself and your personal golf history and connection to the game of golf? Oh, sure, sure. I was born and raised in Chicago. I started playing about 12 years old. My dad picked up the game late. I think he was about 40 years old when he started playing. My brother and I started hanging with dad out at the driving range, and I kept playing. My brother turned to art, and then golf became my thing and became something that my dad and I would spend time doing. And um, I fell in love with it probably at about 14 years old. And I grew up with a golf course. Pipe Peace Golf Course was one of the two golf courses in the Chicago area that most of the people color hung around. The other one was Jackson Park. Hypo Peace is now called Joe Lewis the Champ. Most of my friends out there were caddies, and I did some caddying myself, but they had to caddy. I didn't have to caddy because of my dad's situation, but that's who I played with most days, and some of those friendships I still have today. Played through high school, went away to school to Arizona State, made the team as a freshman, but ended up transferring back closer to home to Illinois State midway through my sophomore year. Played for Illinois State University, and after school, I tried to make off my profession as a mini tour player. I came to Tampa, Florida and played the J.C. Goosey Space Coast Mini Tour back then. And I guess the Space Coast back in those days was the web.com of today. It was the next step to the tour. And I didn't have enough game and didn't have enough money to stay out there. And I got a job. I was fortunate enough to land a job in the industry. I started as an assistant pro with Tampa Sports Authority. I went on to become the head pro at Rogers Park Golf Course. And Rogers Park in Tampa was to Tampa what Pipe Peace was to Chicago. And while at Rogers Park, I started running youth programs and like to say, found myself a calling and bringing young people into the game and really could empathize with them from the relationships I had through junior golf around Chicago. And that led me to the Chichi Rodriguez Youth Foundation as director of golf and started a, my own nonprofit after that, Urban Junior Golf. And this was in 91 now. And Urban Junior Golf went for years and merged with the YMCA. And happy to say right now, it is the first tee of Tampa Bay, serving some 50,000 kids annually. And what started as a small little thing in 1991 is now big time. 
I did 13 years with Diversity National Office as the Southeast Regional Director, and it was there that I met Steve Mona, which was in 2008. Met Steve Mona when he first came to the World Golf Foundation as Director of Golf, and he asked me to be the Diversity Director, the first and only Director of Diversity for the World Golf Foundation, and the job only lasted a year. The board said we couldn't continue to fund it, and that was in 2010 when the economy went in the tank. And Steve Mona still remained passionate about diversity, and he started the Diversity Task Force, and I was a member there. And we started going after diversity as a committee, which we still do as a volunteer committee. And last year, he asked me to be the first chairperson for that committee, and that's where we are today. Wow. So you've had an incredible journey so far. And it sounds like with your passion, you're, you're just getting started here. So let's continue on with talking about the 2020 Diversity Task Force. And I've had the pleasure of speaking to Steve Mona and actually having him on as a guest on the Mod Golf Podcast last season. And he is a wonderful man and he truly is passionate about diversity and inclusion in golf and growing it. He is sincere about it. He is authentic and he is supportive. And I know he's supported you. So I'd like to hear a bit more about your work with the World Golf Foundation and specifically with the 2020 Diversity Task Force. Tell us a bit more, Dr. Cooper, about the mandate, what you are currently doing, and what programs and initiatives you are putting in place right now on the ground there to fulfill this vision that you have with the 2020 Diversity Task Force. Okay. We're about 25 people strong, individuals on the task force. Of course, it's led by Steve Mona, but he does rely on me to keep the communications with the 25. And the 25 members, we've been intentional in the makeup of that 25. We have good representation from the golf leadership. The USGA is represented, golf course owners represented, good representation of the golf course leaders, as well as minority-led community-based leadership too. And so as Steve and I talked it through, it was my contention that the leaders in the golf industry aren't aware of what's going on in local communities as it relates to working with diverse populations and vice versa. Those community-based leaders aren't aware of what's going on at the tops of the industry. And so we use a phrase called linking agent. Our diversity task force wants to be that linking agent, helping to bring those two together to make the golf industry more knowledgeable about what's happening in the community and vice versa. In my experiences in golf, and I'm going to hearken to my first tee days and with Urban Junior Golf, I was one of those minority-led community-based organizations. And I felt that if the industry, well, I'll say it this way, the industry has created a lot of initiatives that through the years they felt was to solve some of the problems of diversity and inclusion. And I've always felt that the industry has kind of made a mistake in creating programs for these communities as opposed to working with these communities. And I use the example when I grew up in Chicago, there's an organization called the Chicago Women's Golf Association. And the Chicago Women's Golf Association just celebrated their 80th anniversary last year. They've been around for 80 years. So imagine a group of African-American women starting a golf organization in 1937. They had a junior golf wing called the Bobolinks. I was in the Bobolinks. Me and my friends were surrounded by the surrogate parents who were the Chicago women. They mentored us and they took us around the golf tournaments. They helped us learn the game of golf. The industry knows nothing about these organizations. And so rather than create some new program for diversity, why not work with organizations like that who've been doing it for years and years and help them do what they do better? 
And so that's kind of the mindset that we've had is to try to make the industry more knowledgeable about what's going on in the community and help the communities more knowledgeable about the industry, helping the image of the game really as much as we are helping diversity. Interesting. So acting as a linking agent, as you call it, rather than trying to build from ground zero, because all these, as you just touched on there, Dr. Cooper, all of these groups and organizations are already in place and have been there, some of them, as you mentioned, for for eight decades. So yes, utilize and harness the power and the passion that you have within those groups rather than, yes, from above trying to then come up with ideas. And I know that's been a problem for in lots of areas for decades and decades, if not centuries of trying to help by the imposing your idea on a community rather than including them and getting them to participate in that process. And it sounds like that's what you're finally doing with the experience that you have and what you're creating there with the Diversity Task Force. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So wanted to talk about last week, and that was late January, and that was at the PGA show in Orlando. And I know you managed to get some positive coverage there with the Golf 2020 Diversity Task Force, also working with Steve. Mona and Elisa Gaudet. She was there representing Women's Golf Day. We both know and are friends with Clemmie Perry, who is the director of Women of Color Golf out of Tampa, and also Sandy Cross, who's the senior director of diversity and inclusion with PGA of America. So can you tell us the experience that you had at the PGA show? I, I tell you, it, it was fabulous. It exceeded any of my expectations, as well as a lot of those in my circle, the Clemmies of the world. I want to give some thanks to Sandy Cross, who sits on a diversity task force in the PGA. They allowed us, they used their relationship with Reed Exposition and Steve Moan and Golf 2020 to one, get us an exhibitor booth for free at the show. And also we were given a room to have a diversity roundtable discussion. And the diversity roundtable discussion, I'll back up a little bit to your first question about the diversity task force. We are divided into five subcommittees within our task force. And the subcommittees are communications and messaging, recreational play, competitive play, workforce diversity, and supplier diversity, finding minority vendors. And each at the roundtable, each of these subcommittees had a table or two, and we asked those who were going to attend to pick their topic of most interest and sit at that table. And we'd have conversations about how they could work in their local community to help increase diversity in those specific areas. We started out, we had 82 people who signed up for the roundtable discussions. And on that day, there must have been 40 to 50 additional people who showed up. We kept having to bring in more chairs. And I think there must have been at least 125 people there. And the energy in the room was incredible, the passion, just incredible. And the wealth of knowledge from some of these community leaders who've been doing this kind of work for years and years and years. It was so exciting. And couple that with some of the industry leads who we had. We had the HR people from the PGA Tour. We had Sandy and others from the PGA of America. AJGA had Stephen Hamlin, Steve Mona. I know I'm going to leave out some, but there had to be a dozen or more industry leaders in the room mixing and mingling with these community leaders, oh, Stephen Sloss with USGA. And so we met there from four o'clock to six o'clock, and then we had a cocktail reception afterwards from six to seven, and they actually had to kick us out of there at 7.30. Everybody was just was so welcoming and comfortable. We said even leading into that, once you personalize it and establish relationships and start talking with everybody, 
you get a sense and an understanding that we're all looking for the same thing. Why aren't we working more together? And so we left there just with a wonderful feeling that perhaps for the first time, some of these people now have a face to put to a title. And the follow-up the next week, it was busy, but incredible. I'm pleased to say that we've got a lot of momentum now. I regret having to get on a plane on the Friday morning and leaving there. I certainly would have loved to be there for that particular session. And with that, it sounds like with the roundtable discussion, it was very much like what I work with in the entrepreneurial startup space, what they call it hackathons, where you actually have diverse groups come in and, and then find ways and initiatives to solve the problem and come up with ideas and, and a plan. So with that, it sounds like you had a, had a great day there, but did anything, any actionable items that revealed themselves as these different groups came together that perhaps 24 hours earlier you hadn't really thought about or, or just galvanized some of the ideas that you had? Anything you can mention come out of that session? Well, sure. There's some things I can mention, but I want to say we came into the session in the fall of last year, 2017. Our diversity task force sat down for the first time and put together a strategic plan where each of those subcommittees got together and we came up with some strategies and goals and objectives from now through 2020. We provided a copy of that strategic strategic plan to everyone who signed up to come to the roundtable. And again, the topics of the day were, how can you participate in your local communities and help us increase and do better with these strategies? And so we weren't really looking for new thoughts, but new partners, I should say. And I'll give one example. As I said, Stephen Hamlin with AJGA was in the room, as was a good friend of mine named LeGene Gould. LeGene runs the Women in Golf Foundation out of Atlanta. LeGene has been doing a, a minority collegiate golf tournament. This is her 20 fourth anniversary coming up. Our Lincoln agent, we connected those two. We actually went across the room and physically pulled them together during the reception. And I said, you two need to talk. They have since had lunch together. Stephen Hamlin said, how in the world can you be 20 years old and I never knew you? And LeGene said, how could we have not talked? Long story short, AJGA and their recruitment team are going to be at the Collegiate Championship that LeGene holds on April 9th through 11th, and specifically trying to encourage some of these college students to sign up for internships through the AJGA. That's a tangible story from that two-hour gathering right there. Yeah, I, I love it. You are literally being the linking agent by literally grabbing each of them with one of your arms and pulling them together there. And it really is about partnerships and collaboration. That's the way to really, if you want to look at it in that startup mindset, that's how you scale up, not doing it all on your own. So it sounds like you're on the right track. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit here because that is not the only hat that you wear as the chairman of the Gulf 2020 Diversity Task Force. Uh -huh. One of the other initiatives that you're involved with is you are the tournament director of the Advocates Pro golf tour. And I know you were on Morning Drive at Golf Channel talking about that with uh, one of your tour players, Doug Smith. So can you tell us a bit about the Advocates Pro Golf Tour? Absolutely. The Advocates Pro Golf Tour has a similar mission as a diversity task force. It is to increase diversity in golf, about as simple as you can get. And the Advocates Tour does it in a number of ways. Of course, we have our tour, which our tour now is going into its eighth year. Primarily minority players, African-American players. We travel around. This year, we'll have seven events in in six different states, seven different cities. We'll go from Miami. One a month starting in March, we'll go Miami, Atlanta, Chicago, Baltimore, Dallas, Houston, and then our championship event in Los Angeles, which we have every year. And we started it quite modestly, the Advocates Tour in 2010, and it came about 
One of my best friends is a guy named Adrian Stills. Adrian was playing that Space Coast tour at the same time I was, and as was another friend named Tom Woodard out in Denver. And so Adrian and Tom, they had enough game. They went on and they made the tour back in the 1980s. And as I said, I went to the club. I went in the club jobs and stayed in golf through that. But Adrian was one of the guys featured on a documentary, Uneven Fairways. It aired on Golf Channel in 2009. And Adrian was introduced to to the president of the advocates, his name is Ken Bentley. And Ken and Adrian had a conversation and, and Ken asked them, why aren't there more African-Americans on tour? And Adrian talked about in our early days, there was a tour called the United Golfers Association, the UGA tour. And it was a traveling caravan of tournaments that attracted mainly African-American golfers throughout the United States. Actually started in 1926 and went for 50 years to 1976. Well, in the early 70s, mid 70s, there were a dozen or so African-American players on the PGA Tour. And Adrian was convinced if something like that could be recreated, that we'd get more African-Americans to play the game, to excel in the game, and get more visibility. So Ken, as the president of the Advocate, said, well, let's do that. And in 2010, we had the first one at Rogers Park Golf Course in Tampa, which is where I started as a head pro. We had three events a year. We're up to seven now. Our long-term goal is to get to 10. But we do much more than the tour. We have mentoring sessions. We have player development sessions, and we have a youth portion of our tour that goes into urban communities and introduces teenagers to the game, most of them for the first time. An example, in 2017 in Atlanta, we had 100 teenagers between the ages of 15 and 20 come out and they try golf. But more importantly, we have successful business folk talk to them about career choices, career path. We have a sponsor, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, who talks to them about making health and wellness and making good choices as it relates to health and wellness. And so we do a lot more than just a tour. Once again, we're trying to increase diversity. And when you see these young people, the excitement on their face of getting an opportunity to come out to a green grass golf facility, experience golf and see people who look like them who are excelling in golf, it really changes their outlook on the game. And so once again, we think that we found a niche and a purpose and a spot for increasing diversity and inclusion. Right, right, right. Let me ask you this. What, what do you find to be the biggest pain points or hurdles or barriers, especially with young urban African-American men and women to play the game? I'm assuming that looking at financial situations, but also access and the ability to actually get back and forth to a golf course. Is, is that fair to say? Or where do you see the major pain points that need to be overcome? Well, certainly anyone who's starting up a, a program or having a program, they have those barriers of cost and access and where can you find equipment and transportation. Those are legitimate barriers that you have to be creative enough to overcome. But one of the largest barriers, I believe, is the welcoming feeling. Are you welcome in there? And are there people who look like me, act like me, culturally like me, yes. who enjoy this game? I think that that's as big a hurdle to overcome first off than the other ones, the transportation. Those things, they've got lots of best practices out there to overcome those hurdles. The welcoming part, though, is something that I think is really what's needed. And as I was saying, how we do it with the Advocates Tour, we see it firsthand. And there's some other programs. You mentioned Clemmy Perry with Women of color. I was at a luncheon with Clemmy last year. I got to hear it firsthand, uh, grown professional females coming up and hugging her and saying, thank you for what you do. One female said, I've been thinking about playing golf for 10 years. 
but I wasn't just going to drive up to a golf course and get out of my car and start playing. You have a program that was a warm introduction for me, and now I'm loving the game. So it's those warm introductions and welcoming that it takes to overcome that stigma that is golf. I mean, imagine a female period, not just black female, but a female period that go out to the golf course and pull out your sticks and you don't even know where to go to sign up. I mean, it just doesn't happen without somebody making that personal warm introduction for you and with you. As Sandy Cross often says, you can't just invite me out to play. You have to invite me out to play with you. That's the type of nurturing and warm introduction that you need. You're not just going to ride up to a course and start playing. So I think that barrier and that stigma is more important than those traditional barriers of cost, access, transportation, plenty of best practices out there to get around those. That's a great insight because human nature, we, for the majority of us, we just do not gravitate towards a place where it feels unwelcoming or people that have similar background really boils down to what to say, even the same cultural values. And it takes much more to actually find things that we have in common and be able to take that link, as you put it so nicely that linking agent that now you are helping facilitate. And Clemmy's doing a great job. And it sounds like now with all the groups across the nation, now you're spreading out, you're managing to get that going in a grassroots way and hopefully scaling that up very quickly across the nation. Well, well, thank you. And I think that cultural phenomenon may be even more important than ethnicity and gender. And I'll point to the off-course facility, Top Golf. They've created a culture all its own, very relaxed, not intimidating. And I know the top golf here in my community. I live in Tampa. You go out there, it is as diverse as you can get. And young people, the millennials are playing. They're having a good time in their mind. They're experiencing golf. And we purists might say, well, you're not really, you're not playing a regulation course. In their mind, they're experiencing golf and they're enjoying golf. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. They've cut across the old cultures and stigmas of the purity of golf. And I think it's fantastic. I agree with you completely there. I'm a, I'm a little bit biased because we're good friends with the leadership there at Top Golf, and we've done some work with them. So yes, I certainly agree with that. And one thing I've said previously on the Mod Golf podcast is I look at golf now of being more of a dial than a switch. And by that, I mean that golf can be many things to many people. Whereas I completely agree with you that going to Top Golf that counts as golf now. You don't have to be as before it was this idea of a switch that you got to play 18 holes, got a card to score so it can actually add to my handicap or else it's not golf. And that has changed even very, very quickly over the last three, four, five years. That's important. It's crucial for golf to grow, as you just touched on, Dr. Cooper, there. As the gateway to golf, there's the introduction to that. So I want to switch gears again here as if you're not busy enough already. I know you wear yet another hat, and that is as a board member with the National Black Golf Hall of Fame. Uh So can you tell us what's going on there and, and your involvement? Yes, absolutely. Proud to be a member. A longtime friend, Jeff Donovan, is the program director and head of the first tee of Eastlake. And he is the head pro and manager of Charlie Yates Golf Course there where they play. Jeff Donovan's father, Harold Donovan, now deceased, God rest his soul, started the National Black Golf Hall of Fame in 1986. He was a PGA member, one of the first, I think his record says, first PGA member to go through the business school. And Harold and Jeff were the first black PGA members, father-son PGA members. And so longtime friends, Harold used to come out to Rogers Park when I was head pro. He'd come out and spend the winter down there, hanging around with the guys and met Jeff through that time and always cherished the history of the National Black Golf Hall of Fame. 
And Harold would always tell us that when he'd have the ceremonies that, man, if we don't tell the stories of the contributions that some of our people have made, who will ever know them? And I, I believe that myself. Who would ever know the stories of the Chicago women's or Wake Robins starting back in 1937 if we didn't preserve that history? Well, sure, we know of Charlie Sifford. But there's been so many more. The Teddy Rose, I could go on and on and on. And so I got really passionate about that. And after Mr. Donovan died, he died in 2000, I believe. It was some question whether the organization would continue and the family legacy continue. And I do want to say, I want to give some kudos to Malachi Knowles. There is a second Hall of Fame, the African-American Hall of Fame. Malachi Knowles started that Hall of Fame in those waning years where we wondered if the National Blackhawk Hall of Fame will continue. Kenny Sims, a good friend of mine, we got with Jeff about 2008 and through a guy named John Simpson. We said, this doesn't need to go away. And so we kind of relaunched that Hall of Fame. And that's when I became a board member. And it's been a terrific experience. I want to say now there is a exhibit at the World Golf Hall of Fame commemorating the contributions of African-Americans in golf. And a lot of that happened at our award ceremony. A gentleman named John Merchant made the declaration that if golf was serious, they would do something like this. Steve Mona took the baton. Lo and behold, in 2014, they unveiled that. Mario Scioto was part of creating a wonderful monument there. And all of that came about through our energy and bringing emphasis to our fallen champions. Mario's gone even further to start an initiative called Remember Them. He does this all over the United States. And we want the golf to be remembered and our champions to be remembered. So through our work with Jeff, through the work of Malachi Knowles, some kind of way, those stories can't go away. Pete McDaniel has uneven lies, Dr. Sinet, Forbidden Fairways. There's stories out there that are unbelievable. And I like to say they made things happen in spite of being rejected by golf. I feel passionate enough that my generation has a duty to not let those stories go untold and unremembered. So let's tell a few of those stories right now. So February is Black History Month. Uh -huh. Really provides the opportunity to honor and celebrate the careers and contributions of African-American golf legends, including Charlie Sifford, who you mentioned earlier, Renee Powell, Calvin Pete, and Lee Elder. Can you please share with our listeners a story or two about each of them and why it's so important that young African-American golfers, for them to appreciate the trail that they have blazed? Well, I'll pick on my good friend who you just mentioned, Renee Powell, and the story of the Clearview Golf Course and the Clearview Foundation. Renee Powell and her family, Dr. Powell, William Powell, started building the golf course in 1948 in East Canton, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland, because he didn't have any place to play. I think the story goes as Dairyland and built his own golf course. It was a nine-hole golf course, Clearview Golf Course, and the Powell family grew up there. Larry Powell is the golf course superintendent. Renee Powell is the head pro. They're now an 18-hole golf course. The first, I believe it is the only golf course in America built and owned by an African-American family. It's an unbelievable story. Renee went on to play the LPGA Tour back in the days. I think she got on tour in the late 60s, maybe early 70s. Second African-American female on the LPGA, Althea Gibson, was the first. Another great story in itself, a winner in tennis, a winner in golf. But the Powell story resonates, and I stay close with Renee right now. She's trying to find a wherewithal to have an endowment so that Clearview Golf Course and the Clearview Foundation never goes away. Larry, her brother, and Renee, they're probably approaching 70 years old. That should never go away. 
that story from the 1940s to now must be preserved. And that golf course never, never died. That's just one of them. <laughs> I'm sure there's there's many more. I'm sure we can spend hours talking about these stories. And, the, and these are stories that need to be told. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I really did not know who Renee Powell was until Clemmie Perry told me, and I did a bit of backgrounding here. And that story and her impact on golf, not just in the African-American community, but just golf as a whole, it needs to be told. And it's a powerful one. Another one quickly I wanted to talk to you about here, Dr. Cooper, is with Charlie Sifford. And I heard that he is considered the Jackie Robinson of golf. Can you tell us why that is and, and his impact on the game? Well, certainly in 1961, the, the Caucasian-only rule was rescinded. And I don't know, maybe I do have to explain the Caucasian-only rule. PGA had a bylaw that said only Caucasians could play on the professional tour. And through the years from that UGA tour that I mentioned earlier, there there were a group of the pioneers from there who got together and said, look, we got to bring this rule down. And a couple of the individuals who were responsible for spearheading that was Joe Lewis and Jackie Robinson. They used their celebrity back at the time. They they played golf back in the 40s, 50s. And as celebrities, they were often invited to come and play in some of these programs, but the golfers were not. The Teddy Rhodes, who was one of the finest players we've ever had of African-American ethnic and Charlie Sifford were probably the two best. And that was Lee Elder back there too. But those celebrities, they used their celebrity, I should say, to challenge golf to rescind that Caucasian-only bylaw. And in 1961, it finally came down. Charlie Sifford was the first one to have playing rights on the tour. And from there, he got that distinction of the Teddy Rose of golf. Now, I know I read in Charlie Sifford's book, Just Let Me Play. And in his book, he said he didn't really like that title because he didn't think that he did the same thing. Sure, he was allowed to be the first Black to come and play. But in Charlie's estimation, in his words, when Jackie Robinson was allowed to come play baseball, there there were many, many, many who followed and played baseball that didn't necessarily happen in golf. And here we are still today talking about why aren't there more blacks in golf or minorities, period. So Charlie, he, he accepted it because that's what people said. But in his book, he said that that wasn't a fair comparison. And I understood from what I read that in Charlie's first PGA Tour event, he had to endure several death threats and he just ignored them and confronted that and just showed up anyway. So it sounds like he's a very courageous man. Oh, gosh. His stories in that book, uh, they go on and on. One of them being he was first group out in an event and in the first hole was human excretion. He pulled a pin out and uh, there was human waste in the hole. Wow. How he kept his composure, well, he said just only through strong faith was how he kept moving forward. And he had a purpose and his purpose was to play golf and to make a mark, which he no question did. I was honored to have known him, but those were my mentors, to be honest, out at Piper Peace Golf Course, and most of them are deceased now. There was a guy named Cliff Brown who played the tour, who was my mentor, showed me everything I knew about golf, basically. Pete Brown, I stayed in his home. He played the tour. All of them, they embraced us young guys, us young caddies, basically, 
And they kept us motivated to play the game and learn the game of golf, even though through their words and their experiences, you weren't going to be welcomed, but just do it on your talents was basically the lesson that they passed along to me. Yes. So that legacy of Charlie Sifford and Rene Powell and others here, it really allows some young African-American golfers to really stand on their shoulders here. And with that, can you tell us about the impact of players now on the PGA Tour, like Harold Varner III and pro athletes like Steph Curry and the impact they're making within the African-American community? Sure, sure. I have had several conversations with Mr. Varner. He actually played one of our advocates tour at Rogers Park before he got out on the tour. And funny, my friend Tom Woodard played with him in the first round of that advocates event. And he told all of us at the scoreboard, you follow him. He's going to the tour. And sure enough, it was about a couple of years later that he did. Adrian Steele's had the same experience with Tony Finau out in Los Angeles. He played with Mr. Finau before he made it out to the tour. And certainly they stand to be role models just because they're so excellent as players. I think that the celebrity types like a Steph Curry, though, I think they could have even more impact in changing cultural stigmatisms of golf. Kind of cool to play. I think it speaks volumes when somebody with that much fame and fortune says that, man, I love golf. I think he's a two handicapper or so. Very accomplished, obviously, in his chosen sport. But he also can help tremendously by speaking up and changing the stagnant culture of golf. I say with our advocates tour, and I believe this, that we are two steps away from being established as the developmental tour to be on. We are some media type like Curry falling in love with what we're doing. Just one of them to say, man, I really think that they're doing a good thing. And then we're a media outlet away. Somebody from a media camera or something saying, you know, they're really doing some good things. I think the Currys of the world could really help move this thing awfully fast, even more so than Harold Varner and Tony Finau. They need to be on the leaderboard on Sunday with the camera on them, just like Tiger did. Could they be more advocates? Uh, Perhaps, if that's what they chose to do. But even more so, get your face on the camera on Saturday and Sunday and win some tournaments. That'll help even more. Absolutely. That winning always helps move the needle. That's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What did I ask you this? Getting back to the linking agent you talk about, growing the game from the grassroots. been thinking about this as far as high schools and the responsibility there or the opportunity of golf teams there. I would assume that the choices that are made between basketball and football, especially, and the opportunities there with NCAA scholarships, do high schools need to do a better job and need to be supported to start to cultivate and nurture and encourage young African-Americans to start playing golf in high school so they can start getting through that pipeline and through the system to have more opportunities? opportunities of getting golf scholarships? Oh, no question about it. High school golf. I moved to Tampa from Chicago and I thought Tampa with 12 months of sunshine would be light years ahead of public school golf system in Chicago. And I saw the same thing. I think it's eight weeks long. The golf coaches many times are just somebody who volunteered who might not even know anything about the game, certainly not enough about the game to help that player get better. And in my discussions around the country, it's pretty much the same all over, particularly in the public schools. That's really a challenge that I think local community programs and schools are going to have to forge more meaningful partnerships to develop these players and get them excited and having fun about golf. And even from a policy standpoint, try to get in there and make golf more important. 
I mean, in most schools, football, basketball, you got those sports, but golf is almost an afterthought in team play in public school systems. And they've got a long way to go with that. Long way to go. So I got to put you on the spot here. Uh-huh. Not you specifically, but how do we collectively crack that nut and even start small there to get that seed planted? Because otherwise, yeah, by the time they're 17, 18 years old with other opportunities there in sports, the opportunity has passed themselves by to get to that next level. Well, I like to give tangible examples. And I'll give a tangible example here in our Tampa community. Through the first tee of Tampa Bay, they have worked with the public school system to create a golf academy at two public middle schools. And those golf academies are acting as a feeder system into public high schools. So young people are learning the game earlier. They also have, through the first tee, have the in-school program and the elementary school where they use snag equipment. So they're filling that whole pipeline from elementary school to middle school to high school golf. And hopefully we can do a better job of getting them into PGM programs at the collegiate level. And so I guess what I'm saying, the example I'm using is it's going to take these partnerships with local community agents to partner with your local schools because public school systems have uh, they got a lot of issues of funding and all kinds of stuff going on there that they can't spend the dedicated time to develop golfers. There has to be these public-private relationships with local communities. I see it working here in Tampa. I think it could be a prototype for how to do it in other communities. Interesting. So, well, thank you for that. It does sound like you said as a prototype or using the Tampa area as that test kitchen to get that right and keep working on that so that then you can hopefully take that across the country. Well, and I can give some other examples. Jeff Donovan is doing the same thing in the Atlanta community. Atlanta community has a couple of community programs that I know of personally who are doing just that same thing. They are working to develop the play ability of young people and actually feeding them into the high school and college system. They're not growing the playability in the high school level that I see. That has to happen outside in the community and then feed them into the high schools. Because the high school golf system is not by design really improving a lot of playability. Unfortunately, it's too short and the people aren't dedicated enough to take the time out to do that. Unfortunately, yes. So it sounds like you need to, once again, that grassroots level, you need the volunteers and the champions and the ambassadors and the people willing to put in the time to make that happen. And it sounds like you've got that started in, in many locations. And I'm very interested to hear how that progresses over the next couple of years. So, hey, lastly here, Dr. Cooper, I'm going to have you pull out your crystal ball here and want to ask you, what do you think or, or hope golf will look like in five or 10 or 20 years from now across the spectrum of recreational participation, professional golf, the fan experience, and the demographic profile of this $70 billion a year industry? Pie in the sky. I hope it looks like the demographics of America. Yes. The face of America is changing. That's conversation for us old folks. And there's charts and pie charts to show that. And even says that by 2040, the face of America will be more minority than the majority. But I tell the example of my 24-year-old son. When he asked, Dad, what do you do? And I talk about this stuff that I do with diversity and the face of America changing. I, I see him kind of shrug and I see him kind of glaze eyes and wonder what I'm talking about. And he's just respectful. He says, have a good day, Dad. 
his world has always been that way. He's 24 years old. He's grown up in a diverse environment. He's grown up in technology. He and his friends, they play disc golf. They play top golf. They live in the world we're talking about is changing. The reality is it's already changed. In his world, it's the only world he knows. Us old heads are still talking about it's changing, but the reality is we already live in a different world. Golf has to catch up. Golf is 35 years behind this change that we're talking about. And if golf doesn't get intentional about making the change and making the change is going to take some resources, then it's still going to be stuck 35 years behind the world that has already changed. We need to fast track this thing. If it's ever going to be the great game that we love, if it's ever going to be a game that's open to all demographics, we've got to change now. This little slow tracking that we're doing and throwing crumbs at it, it's not going to change like that. We got to giddy up and make a change right away. Giddy up indeed. Golf needs to become intentional. Absolutely. I like that line a lot. So, hey, why don't we leave it at that? But before we go here, can you tell our listeners where they can learn about all the great things that you are doing? Well, the Golf 2020 Diversity Task Force just opened a new website. Just Google Golf 2020 Diversity. It'll take you to the new landing space. Our committee with the communications, a guy named Tony Starks with PGA Magazine, Craig Kirby, Jim Beatty. I'm going to leave out so many names and they're going to say, why didn't you mention my name when you had a chance? But it is a work in progress. That website is going to continue to evolve. We're going to collect the names of some of these community-based organizations, try to shine a light on them if no more than to let the industry know what they've been doing out there. We're going to collect data on where the competitive players are who are trying to get to the next level. We're going to collect data on who wants an internship and link them with who's offering an internship. So we're just getting started. I'm hopeful that we can make a lot of progress by the end of 2020. I'm hoping that it'll continue after that. But more than anything, I hope that one day we don't even have to have this conversation, that it's done. It's ridiculous to me that we're still having this conversation over the demographics of golf. It really is. I agree with you 100% on that. And I wish we don't have to have this conversation either. We could talk about other things, but it is important. And it's been my pleasure shining that light on you today and all the initiatives that you're working on. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. I do believe, you're welcome. I do believe that in April, you are going to be attending National Golf Day in D.C., is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I will be there and I'm going to do everything I can to keep moving the needle forward. Absolutely. I'll be there. And every other occasion that I'm invited to, we've been clamoring to be invited and welcomed. And now we have to show up. Well, I have been invited also to National Golf Day by We Are Golf and by Steve Mona's group. I hope to be able to make that happen. I'm certainly making it a priority. And I certainly look forward to meeting you in person and having yet another conversation as we continue. So once again, Dr. Michael Cooper, thank you very much for your time today. And thank you for being a guest on the Mod Golf Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's a wrap for this week's episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with World Golf Foundation Golf 2020 Diversity Task Force Chairman, Dr. Michael Cooper. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Cooper and the impactful work he's doing with Golf 2020, the National Black Golf Hall of Fame, and the Advocates Pro Tour, go to our episode page at www.mod.golf for links to websites, images, and video content. Please join me again next week when I speak with GolfLogic's president and co-founder, Pete Charleston, to learn how their innovative product, Putt Break Maps, allows you to quickly read greens like a pro on your smartphone and sink more putts. If you enjoy the Mod Golf podcast, please go to our website at www.mod.golf or find us on iTunes. 
where you can subscribe on either platform. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Have a great week, and I look forward to you joining us again soon. Bye for now.